the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us for this installment. Follow the program at danproftshow.com. On social media, at Dan Proft Show on Twitter and Facebook and at Prof Dan on Instagram, if you're so inclined. Uh, we begin the program by uh, tackling uh, the police reform uh, that has paid to taken uh, both the form of an executive order promulgated by President Trump on Tuesday, as well as uh, taken legislative form. Uh, as introduced by Tim Scott, uh, Senator Tim Scott and Republican senators today. We'll get to the Scott legislation. It's not dissimilar, sort of flies in formation with the executive order presented by President Trump yesterday. Um, Some of the specifics are uh, germane. Uh, Remember, there's a limit to what the president can do. There's really a limit to even what Congress can do here, as policing is largely a local matter. So what you really have are all sorts of uh, suggested best practices tied to federal funding as a way to incentivize police accountability. And uh, it was President Trump's job to sort of lay out a statement of principle when it comes to law and order, when it comes to policing. And he did that in his address yesterday. I thought he struck the balance between policing and police accountability quite nicely, actually. We have to find common ground. But I strongly oppose the radical and dangerous efforts to defend, dismantle, and dissolve our police departments, especially now when we've achieved the lowest recorded crime rates in recent history. Americans know the truth. Without police, there is chaos. Without law, there is anarchy. And without safety, there is catastrophe. We need leaders at every level of government who have the moral clarity to state these obvious facts. Americans believe we must support the brave men and women in blue who police our streets and keep us safe. Americans also believe we must improve accountability, increase transparency, and invest more resources in police training, recruiting, and community engagement. Reducing crime and raising standards are not opposite goals. They are not mutually exclusive. They work together. They all work together. And so in contained in the uh, EO, the executive order, you've got uh, uh, a certification and credentialing section uh, looking for police departments to use independent credentialing bodies to make assessments on law enforcement practices Uh, identify internal deficiencies, correct those deficiencies, and make the Department of Justice discretionary grant funding contingent on police departments doing so. That's a good example. 
that uh, of the form that most of these elements of the executive order takes exists. I engage with uh, uh, independent credentialing bodies, the AG's office shell, Department of Justice shell. Also, in terms of information sharing, and again, this is a smart thing. This is a, a good thing, a fair thing. Create a database to coordinate the sharing of information between and among federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial law enforcement agencies concerning instances of excessive use of force related to law enforcement uh, matters. Also, uh, a, a mechanism to track as permissible terminations or decertifications of law enforcement officers, criminal convictions of law enforcement officers for uh, professional misconduct, for on-duty conduct, really, civil judgments against law enforcement officers. You know, collect this in a central location that uh, law enforcement agencies at every level can access so that, for example, a, a cop who is uh, terminated, decertified, has a civil judgment, much less a criminal conviction uh, in one jurisdiction, can't just pick up and move and go to another jurisdiction and get hired. There's some institutional knowledge there. All the stuff that makes sense. Also, with respect to mental health, um, uh, enlist the Health and Human Services Secretary and Department to uh, identify opportunities to train law enforcement officers with respect to encounters with individuals suffering from impaired mental health, homelessness, addiction, and um, also increase the capacity of social workers working directly with law enforcement agencies. So the, the idea of, of that interplay that's already ongoing to strengthen those bonds and the, the, the collaboration, again, and tie that to the grant funding from HHS. So that's sort of, as I said, the uh, form for the function of the executive order. And so uh, Tim Scott uh, stood with uh, his fellow Republican senators, many of them, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, this morning to unveil uh, their legislative proposal, which uh, McConnell said will be taken up uh, probably the week after next. Uh, There's some judicial matters the Senate has to deal with or McConnell wants to deal with, and then that's next on the docket. Uh, here was this Tim Scott sort of, you know, again, it, the, the vision statement, the basis for this, uh, and a, 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 a recollection of his personal experience that Senator Scott has provided previously in, in terms of being a, a black American and, in his words, being uh, – having more interactions with police than he otherwise would simply because he is a black American. We're good people, working hard, trying to keep order in the communities. Communities of color and people like myself, I've told my story several times, stopped seven times in one year. Uh, that has been said a lot, but I was stopped this year uh, driving while black when I got a warning ticket for Using failing to use my turn signal earlier in my lane change. And so this issue continues, and that's why it's so important for us to say that we hear you. We're listening to your concerns. Uh, the George Floyd incident certainly accelerated this conversation, and we find ourselves at a place with a package that I think speaks to the families that I spoke with yesterday who lost loved ones. We hear you. I think this package speaks very clearly to the young person who's concerned when he's stopped by the law enforcement officers. We see you. Yeah, right. Okay. There's a, um, and I don't dispute the importance of that. People 
feeling like their legitimate complaints are being heard and being addressed within the purview of the power of those addressing them. And so that, I think, is what Tim Scott is addressing. I mean, just by the way, I don't know the nature of those times that Tim Scott was stopped by police for traffic incidents. Um, and I, I don't dispute that uh, they were uh, there was a, a racial component to them. Tim Scott clearly feels there was. However, being being stopped seven times in one year um, is not dispositive of anything. Just by the way, I mean, I, I'm stopped for speeding. I've been stopped for speeding seven times in you know two month period, but probably less than that in my life. And I'm just a white suburban kid. So um, I don't think race had much to do with it. Probably my rate of speed had a lot to do with it. I mean, you know, getting pulled over for making a lane change or using your your uh, uh, blinker uh, late and making a lane change. Look, I've you've had I've had cops stop me too who are idiosyncratic. Whether it's uh, for thirty seven and a thirty, not signaling a lane change, signaling late on a lane change, rolling through a stop sign. You know, minor infractions that are routinely uh, overlooked that weren't in my case. So, and I'm not crying about it. I'm just saying the like seven times in a year. Uh, the the signaling, late signaling and a lane change thing. I, I'm sorry, but that's not dispositive of anything. Now, again, to be fair, I don't know the circumstances, so I'll give Tim Scott the benefit of the doubt. He also made mention, as you sort of heard at the outset, it could infer that uh, most police are hardworking people and doing the right thing. He's not clearly he's not advancing the narrative that, you know, all cops are bad cops. There's a sort of a institutional cultural problem that's not what he's advancing. He's advancing for those that do cross the line. There needs to be accountability. It needs to be swift and it needs to be real uh, so that uh, there is faith in both the police and the justice system more generally. And uh, that's what he's trying to get to. So uh, a minor quibble on Scott's with Scott and just in terms of uh, uh, some of his uh, his dicta in delivering his proposal. But, you know, I just had to point it out. I'll tell you, um, uh, someone that in two paragraphs had put made more sense than uh, the last two weeks of pronouncements from Beltway pundits is uh, Jason Riley over at The Wall Street Journal. And we want, when we come back, I want to pick up uh, both his piece as well as that of his colleague Holman Jenkins on uh, the black silent majority and uh, whether we have a race problem in this country or a crime problem. That's coming up on the damn prop show. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, uh, picking up on our conversation about uh, what uh, President Trump offered on Tuesday, what uh, Tim Scott and Senate Republicans offered today in uh, advance of uh, police reform, not uh, reimagining, just reform, but uh, substantive in nature. And actually, uh, despite some 
customary carping from the usual suspects. There's actually some support for what President Trump offered in in terms of the the uh, broad strokes of his executive order, which followed up on by Tim Scott's legislation from uh, those on the left, including Van Jones and CNN. So it's interesting. And that's one approach, the thoughtful, restrained. Let's uh, advance the flag in a direction that um, uh, that it needs to go in order to um, uh, restore the greater consent of the governed when it comes to police, law enforcement, our criminal justice system. There's the Tim Scott approach. And let me give you a different approach, which, of course, you've seen play out on the streets throughout the country. You've seen play out in terms of the uh, positions advocated by the Ilhan Omars and uh, others who are talking quite literally about uh, defunding the police and trying to come up with some other way to uh, enforce the law in a and keep the peace in a free society. We'll look forward to what Minneapolis comes up with. Uh, Roderick Sawyer is an alderman in the city of Chicago. And uh, in Chicago, as in many cities, you now have you know the purging of the police from all other public institutions and some private institutions, colleges. How about K-12 through school systems? So the police have a presence in the Chicago public school system, as well they should, oh, by the way. The metal detector is sort of a leading indicator in so many Chicago public schools, unfortunately, uh, in particular neighborhoods, the west and south sides of the city, most notably, but not exclusively. And Roderick Sawyer uh, making the argument for kicking CPD out of CPS, kicking the police out of the Chicago public school system. Historically, when police officers were called in the schools, they were there to protect outside threats from the students. Let's fast forward to today. Now our students are being criminalized for being students at CPS. Uh, if if you don't know what he's talking about and you think, oh, that must be some local Chicago thing I don't understand, I'm a local Chicago thing and I don't understand. Our students uh, at CPS are being criminalized by police. I, I don't know. It's just a way to try to bootstrap an argument that makes absolutely no sense. And it's additionally not true. And one more thing, Timothy, are those making arguments like this? Chicago is a prime example. And what that clip is particularly handy because the Chicago public schools were recently within the last two years, the subject of an expose by the Chicago Tribune that found over the course of just a handful of years that they investigated, there were more than 500 cases, credible cases of sexual assault by a Chicago public school teacher or employee against a student, 500 plus, just over a handful of years that were where records were examined by Chicago Tribune investigative reporters. Now, for those, including in the teaching profession, these Maoist teacher unions, would you uh, like to apply the same standard to police? Uh, excuse me, the same standard to your profession that you're applying to police 500 some cases over a handful of years. Does that mean that uh, every Chicago public school teacher is uh, a sexual predator or a sexual predator 
in waiting? Does that mean there's systemic sexual predation in the Chicago te- Chicago public school teaching ranks? No, no. But uh, to make that sort of distinction requires some thoughtfulness and proportionality, something that they apply to themselves in exempting themselves, but they don't apply to uh, an institution, an organization they find convenient to scapegoat for political reasons. It's really sickening. And so wildly intellectually dishonest, it deserves to be rebuked, not celebrated as some sort of blow for racial justice. Roderick Sawyer is a joke, a joke. And so are the politicians in most of these urban centers, particularly those advocating for such senseless policy to satisfy the mob, to bend the knee. Uh, One might ask Roderick Sawyer, whose uh, father was a longtime Chicago politician too, generational so, again, per our conversation earlier in the week with the great Walter Williams from George Mason University, the increase in representation, the increase in black representation, black Americans in public office at every level over the last 50 years. I mean, obviously, an exponential increase since the civil rights era. And how has that served black families in big cities who have seen across so many measures their quality of life actually decline over the last half century, even with more people who look like them in terms of sharing the same race in office. Isn't that interesting? So maybe Roderick Sawyer uh, and the other black politicians have some covering up to do of what's happened to the neighborhoods they represent and the kind of quality of life families in their ward have access to. So you got to scapegoat. Uh, the big bad police, not to say that there haven't been historic problems with Chicago police and go chapter and verse on that. We're talking about 2020 in America. We're talking about Chicago police presence and see in the side of the Chicago public school system. And if you just want to go based on data uh, over the last several years, it's the Chicago teachers and administrators who have presented a greater physical threat to students than police by a wide margin. In fact, and this brings in Jason Riley's piece, Wall Street Journal, which I mentioned before the break. Two paragraphs, more common sense contained within the two paragraphs from his piece than you've heard in two weeks from the Beltway pundits across the board. Uh, most black people, this is Jason Riley, most black people know that George Floyd is no more representative of blacks than Derek Chauvin is of police officers. They know that the frequency of black encounters with law enforcement has far more to do with black crime rates than it does with racially biased policing. They know that young black men have far more to fear from their peers than from the cops. And they know that the rioters are opportunists, not revolutionaries. End of paragraph one. Paragraph two, the close. There's nothing wrong with having a national conversation about better policing. But this one has turned into a conversation about blaming law enforcement for social inequality, which is not only illogical, but dangerous. Unsafe neighborhoods retard upward mobility and poorly policed neighborhoods are less safe. A conversation that doesn't acknowledge that reality is hardly worth having. He's right. It's not worth having a conversation with the Roderick Sawyers of the world. They're demagogues and they know it. Hopefully the black silent majority that Jason Riley speaks of 
will not be silent much longer. This is Dan Proff. Listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Vice President Mike Pence uh, opining in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the uh, so called second wave, saying um, there isn't a second wave. And point of fact, such panic is overblown, he writes, that uh, the public health system is stronger than it was four months ago, and we are winning the fight against the invisible enemy. While talk of an increase in cases dominates cable news coverage, more than half of the states are actually seeing cases decline or remain stable. Every state, territory, and major metro area, with the exception of three, have positive test rates under 10%. And in the six states that have reached more than 1,000 new cases a day, Increased testing has allowed public health officials to identify most of the outbreaks in particular settings, prisons, nursing homes, meatpacking facilities, and contain them. Lost in the coverage is the fact that today less than 6% of Americans tested each week are found to have the virus. Cases have stabilized over the past two weeks, with the daily average case rate across the United States dropping to 20,000, down from 30,000 in April and 25,000 in May. And in the past five days, deaths are down to fewer than 750 a day a dramatic decline from the 2,500 a day a few weeks ago and a far cry from the 5,000 a day that were some were predicting. Is the media continuing to whip up frenzy trying to sustain the narrative they began absent data that really supports it, absent the last throes of a first wave or the beginnings of a second wave, however you want to demarcate the two? The question is, Are we cherry picking data when we're saying, you know, COVID is back and it's here to stay and we still need to proceed with uh, an abundance of caution to use one of the favorite phrases of the politicals? Well, let's get an expert opinion on all of that. We're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Jonathan Ellen. He's a pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. And so what about uh, sort of Mike Pence versus the cable, some of the cable TV outlets? Is there a, is there a clearly uh, a superior position evidence, uh, on an uh, you know, evidence basis? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, what we're, what we're watching is um, it's not clear how come people are cherry picking the data. I think what you just read, which I guess was Pence's editorial, which I haven't seen yet. Right is really making the argument that just because we're seeing an increase in cases in some places, it's not doesn't mean the same thing that it meant when we saw the increases in cases in generally March and mid-March. Back then, we were worried about the healthcare systems, and we saw it happening in New York and Seattle and L.A. and eventually in Detroit, that they were overwhelming the healthcare system. We were worried that we had no testing, which we really didn't at the time. We were short on PPEs. And all those things really put us in a bad position. And we took what we have to remember was a particularly, I think, justifiable but very draconian measure, which was to have people stay at home. And it hurt the economy. And as we talked about last time I was on, that impact had impacts that also could affect lives and they could affect, as you were saying, sort of mortality and mortality. And now 
we're in a dip. When you take that same picture and you look at what we're having now, all you're seeing is increases in cases. And some of those are due to increased testing. Some of them is, are due to the fact that, you know, the streets were empty and now they're not. And so people are going to get infected. People are going to restaurants. Things are going to happen. And the question is, are we seeing the definition or the same context that we saw in March? And the answer is we're not. And so um, there are definitely people who want to, as you said, politicize this and sort of argue we were right in the beginning and we're going to stay right no matter what happens. And um, they may have been right in the beginning, but they're not right now. Um, and so my perspective is that we're not seeing an increase in deaths. If you look at Florida in particular, which is one of the areas because of the Santos people are very upset about, what you see in Florida is a really dramatic drop in death, daily deaths reported compared to a pretty dramatic increase in cases. And that tells you that we are, part of that is due to expanded testing. And with expanded testing, we're testing asymptomatic or low symptom people. And as you said earlier, we're protecting nursing homes and we're protecting as many of those high risk areas that I wrote about in the last article. And by doing so, we are preventing deaths. And we also have better health care now um, in terms of how we manage people when they do get admitted to the hospital. Yeah, I mean, the, the, so, right, rightfully, we've uh, we've learned a thing or two over the last uh, 90 to 100 days, and one would expect we would, and we should apply what we learned. It, it doesn't seem that controversial, but uh, I want to pick it up there uh, and uh, when we come back, talk about uh, your piece in City Journal as well, the how of the infection and how we should be categorizing cases going forward as uh, as we continue to manage uh, the fight against uh, COVID-19. More with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, yesterday on the program, we had Dr. Thomas Yadiger, who's a pulmonologist and the medical director of the intensive care unit at Providence Cedar sinai Tarzana Medical Center in L.A., and asked him about this positive developments. Good to hear. Uh, yesterday, scientists at the University of Oxford announced they had identified what they call the first drug proven to reduce COVID-19-related deaths in seriously ill patients, those receiving oxygen treatment or on a vent, the steroid dexamethasone could be a game changer. That's at least what Dr. Yadiger had to say. Dexadron, dexamethasone is an immunosuppressant medication. It's actually a very, very strong one. You know, if the data is proven to be true, then this would be, you know, revolutionary and can uh, obviously help a lot of people. Revolutionary. For more on this, please be rejoined by Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, uh, you heard Dr. Yadiger, revolutionary potentially because you're talking about uh, curing people that are in the worst conditions, and we know we can treat people in the less than worst conditions. So this should be good news to perhaps reopen more quickly, shouldn't it? 
Uh, sure. I think we had another one of our conversations. I'm always anxious if there's something peer-reviewed. Yeah, it's sure. There's two major retractions that have gone on. The fact that the authors came out prior to peer review and announced their own findings. You know, one is societal benefit, and I appreciate that. But I really would like it to get peer-reviewed and picked apart. I've done so much peer-reviewing of, of papers in my life where I found flaws. As he said, the devil's in the details. So I'm really hopeful that it makes biologic sense, and he says it makes clinical sense. So I'm very hopeful that it will bear out. But I, before I would get super excited, I want to see the peer review and validate, you know, that someone could replicate his data. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, those are all fair caveats, yeah. uh, but but <laughs> uh, clearly, and and so yeah. we want to be patient. But as you say, we want to take notes of uh, optimism and and check them out because. That would necessarily change the way we view the approach that we're taking to the virus, wouldn't it? Yes. I mean, I think the point you're making, which I do agree with, this cloud of doom that is forcing people into this panel with the increasing rate should start to lift a little bit, even though, you know, with the idea that we have a treatment that can prevent people from dying. That's this is the first one that we've had that can actually have this kind of clinical significant impact. And so even if you get sick, your likelihood of dying drops. And then people will not be as fearful and panicked as they have been. Ronald Bailey and Reason Magazine went through a couple of new uh, models, if you will, uh, studies that purport to uh, estimate how many lives were saved because of the lockdown. One of them comes incredibly to me from the Imperial College London again. And, and, and of course, uh, you know, we're talking about millions of lives saved so that the benefit yeah. is obvious. According to these models, we'll see as more real world data becomes available and informs those models. But I mean, should we give those models much attention at all or should we just stop trying to make sort of real time assessments on the policies that we pursued until more of the dust settles? I would go with the latter. I mean, I think that the models were helpful in convincing people how to look at the fact that we had no PPE, that we our hospitals were not well prepared. I mean, there was a whole bunch of things that we were not ready for this virus, as I wrote in the last piece. And so if the models were a good advocacy tool, given that it made sense that we took drastic action, but right now, looking backwards and forwards and sideways with models is really it's an academic exercise. You know, I think good common sense, which is what, you know, you're referring to and what Pence was trying to push out there is that, you know, we're not seeing the same context we saw before. And so thinking about how to take those models and what those models mean today is not a lot. So segueing back to what we should be doing rather than uh, arguing about uh, these uh, models at present, you uh, write in City Journal about uh, disease investigation Talk to us about disease investigation and the way that we should be classifying cases of infection going forward for the purposes of contact tracing. Yes. I mean, what I was writing about was the fact that a lot of the information we're getting now about transmission has either come from those models we were just discussing, or they came from these experimental studies of aerosol droplets and fomites touching surfaces and whether you could get infected by surfaces. And all of that led us to come up with our public policy. And as we go forward, we've now seen that we saw there are certain types of closed closed environments like factories, like nursing homes, like prisons, and healthcare facilities that we know are high risk. And so when you start to take 
those high-risk places off the table. And those of us who are not in those high-risk places that are trying to engage in commercial activity or engaging in social activity, we, and we want to know whether we're at risk and where we're at risk and how we're at risk. So we stay out of those high-risk places, but can we go to a restaurant? Can we sit outside of a restaurant? Can we go into a building? What, what kind of ventilation is right in the building? What kind is wrong? And so the, the feeling is we need data that tells us about how the infection is being transmitted outside of those high-risk spots. And the way you do that is what's called disease investigation, where you take the contact tracing data, you take information about what you know about the people who you actually interviewed in that, you think about where the disease is at the time, and from that you can create the classic, what they call it, is who, what, when of the infection, and from that you infer the transmission route. And our CDC is famous for doing that. And that's one of the points that many of the people in public health have been frustrated by is because our CDC is one of the leaders in disease investigation and finding out how diseases are transmitted. So while it's cool to hear stories about meat packing plants or hear stories, what we're trying to find out is, you know, how many infections come from someone going to a restaurant? How many infections are coming from the protest? I mean, right, I would, right. I'm surprised we haven't gotten somebody who just did a quick, even with a public health department, not a researcher. You know, how many people who go grab a thousand people at the next rally and test them two weeks later? What do we got? I mean, I would love to start seeing what we're seeing out of social and commercial life, not what we're seeing from these high-risk places and not what we're seeing from just household contact. Mm. So that you would know and I would know how we're getting infected. Right. Makes sense. And, and right. And that that uh, would would aid our understanding of transmission and potentially aid our confidence in resuming our participation in social and commercial activities. So to, to your point, uh, he is Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. No, no, no. Don't pass me over. No, no, no. Don't pass me by. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So I got my first haircut since the lockdown. And, of course, um, not much of a mask wearer. Uh, also, not much of a temperature taker. And both were uh, contingencies to getting my haircut. So uh, the, I'm sure most people have experienced this, but I just did for the first time. The, the thing, you know, they point the thing at your chest, takes your temperature. 97.3, so I was green, so it was good to go. But then had to wear... One of the surgical masks, which, of course, uh, accomplishes nothing except uh, signaling to people that you care about them or some such thing uh, for the haircut. And I I couldn't um, I couldn't help but think of Aubrey Huff, which is an odd thing to say. I know it's uh, I'm sitting getting my haircut wearing a mask and I couldn't help to think of a former San Francisco Giants uh uh, infielder who stopped playing about uh, six years ago. Well, that's because Aubrey Huff is uh, pretty strong when it comes to making social commentary. And uh, on masks, he offered a, a doozy 
for uh, uh, for the Twitterverse so everyone could lose their minds. And I uh, I appreciate uh, Aubrey. And I don't appreciate everything Aubrey Huff has had to say over the years, but I do appreciate his willingness to run into panzer fire for sport. I posted a tweet yesterday about no longer willing to comply for wearing a mask inside a grocery store. And the liberal left, the soy boy professors and the blue checkmark crazy cat ladies were in unison guilt shaming me for threatening the lives of millions of innocent people. Now, if you want to wear a mask and live in fear the rest of your life, it's certainly your prerogative. But the vast majority of well-adjusted, sane, common sense people that aren't sheep, that can reason for themselves, agree with me. I understand the coronavirus is real. And if you have pre-existing conditions or you're an old person, and I know this sounds insensitive, but somebody has to say it, you are morbidly obese, then stay the f home. Just because that is your plight in life doesn't mean the whole world has to shut down. You know, I was at the grocery store today and the two ladies that were checking me out were wearing these masks. And I love to make people like that smile and laugh and have a great conversation. You couldn't even see the wrinkles in their eyes with their smiles. They look so beat down and run down. This is not a selfish thing for me. This is a thing for me to try and free Americans so they can freely breathe. It's not healthy to breathe in your own CO2 all the time. And it, it seems like everybody's a coronavirus expert. Listen, if I, God forbid, get the coronavirus, guess what I do? I go home, I get well, and I go back and live like my life. I would rather do that. Hell, I would rather die from coronavirus than to live the rest of my life in fear and wearing a damn mask. Yeah, and uh, listening to the uh, apocalyptic misinformation from lockdown politicians. Uh, Aubrey Huff is right. That's no way to live. This is the damn prop show. Fake news. He's always got their real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Since uh, we have the nation's uh, attention on race, we should broaden the conversation, not just to talk about uh, class as uh, more of a preeminent issue than race, but also uh, with respect to taking inventory of the state of urban centers taking inventory with respect to the success of the $30 trillion that we've spent since the Great Society. Has that delivered on the promises that were made? Did the uh, promise of Brown versus Board of Education, has that come true in our nation's K-12 through school systems? What about the, the business community? Is uh, extending opportunity to those who have not historically enjoyed it or are not enjoying it at present is that to come in the form of government mandates? Is that to come in the form of private action? And if it's private action, what form should it take? As somebody who has long been making the case for engagement with black entrepreneurs and the need to extend a culture of entrepreneurship within 
the black community in America is Robert Blackwell, who's a black entrepreneur himself, successful one, who's here in Chicago. He's the founder and CEO of EKI Digital, which is an IT company, and also the CEO of Killer Spin, which is a, a corporate or experiential company who's centered around ping pong, and, and he's a ridiculously good, almost Olympic quality ping pong player. Robert Blackwell, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So um, the last uh, couple of weeks, we've heard from some black entrepreneurs, very successful ones. We heard from billionaire Bob Johnson, formerly uh, the founder of the BET Network and sold it. What we heard from him is a call for reparations. He has a specific reparations plan. We heard uh, last week on uh, CNBC from Robert Rufkin, who is a younger entrepreneur. Uh, He's the CEO of Compass, which is a pretty sizable real estate brokerage outfit. He talked about not just the need for entrepreneurship, but specifically what he's doing at Compass, which is to essentially impose 15 percent quotas privately with uh, his real estate brokers in terms of who they do business with. 15 percent of the business they do on an annualized basis needs to be with minorities. What do you think about uh, those two contributions to the discussion and uh, what would you add or subtract from those contributions? Well, I don't like to be critical of people, but I will uh, let's all start with Reskin. I would say that's a private company. They can do whatever they want to do. I think there's nothing wrong with that. That's one great thing about this country. You can do whatever you want to do. As to Bob Johnson and the reparations, I am not a fan of reparations, not because I don't think there's been damage done to the black community, specifically by the government. And as we come up on the the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, it was a pretty affluent, self-sufficient black community. And in 1921, there was a group of white men went and kidnapped a black boy because he was standing next to a white girl. She started screaming and they went and kidnapped him and put him in jail and the black men of the town feared that he was going to get lynched or was probably going to happen to him, so they went and rescued him. Well, what happened next is that people in town got guns and went and massacred a number of black people and burned down that part of town. It seems to me that that was a failure of government. I would say the number one responsibility of government is to protect its citizens against coercion, both foreign and domestic. Obviously, that's the police and the military. So oftentimes in our country, the police have really failed. Uh, The government has failed to do that. There's frankly been lots of uh, cases like that. But I think today around reparations, unfortunately you can't go back and undo some of the things of the past. But I, I will say some of the things that people associate benefits that they associate with the black community, the black community never actually gets specifically minority business programs. I believe most people think that blacks are the ones that benefit from minority business programs. And I've done my own studies of them, and blacks are actually at the bottom of participation in the minority category. So, And, wh- and why out- is that? Why is that? Because I think these programs are mostly fake. They benefit people born outside the United States more than inside the United States. I did a uh, study of the 2010 census, and these are the numbers of all the companies by ethnicity with companies with employees. Took all the majority-owned companies, 
and 9.4 trillion, women a trillion, Asians 455 billion, Hispanics 276 billion, and blacks 98 billion. And that 98 billion is not even a real number because corporations, uh, large corporations, and government to some extent, likes to have big numbers so they can be in the billion dollar round table and you know have their good guy diversity programs and telling everybody that they care so much. So what they will do is you will take, I don't want to pick on a particular company, but let's say a company that's in transportation, they have a Fortune 500 company that's in transportation or package delivery, but they're going to spend billions of dollars on fuel. What they will do is they're going to buy, obviously, jet fuel from a large uh, petroleum company. And what they will do in order to get minority credit is they will take a black company and they say, well, we want you to buy, we want to buy $100 million worth of fuel from you. You go buy it from the, the energy company and they buy it for $99,750,000. This way, both companies say, oh, we're good corporate citizens. We did $100 million. In the meantime, you got a company with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and you know a handful of employees. That's how the system works. But Robert, let me t- t- take a step back. Uh, but but I mean that's that's important in terms of the scam that's being run. The perception, a uh, hundred million dollars. Well, we did a hundred million dollars with that minority-owned company. When in point of fact, that minority-owned company got a two hundred fifty thousand dollars profit on one transaction. I mean, so that's a really good illustration of what's happening. But I want to go back to Black Wall Street for a second. So why did Black Wall Street exist in Tulsa in 1921, and it doesn't exist? in 2020 America anywhere? Well, I, I would say there, there, there are two reasons. And Tulsa wasn't the only place. There was a place called Bully, Oklahoma, which was similar. There was Durham, uh, North Carolina. In, yeah, in, in Florida. So you have to ask yourself a question, what happened? Well, if you look at the, the history of blacks in this country, I don't have to go back to the slave slavery. Everybody knows about that. But in uh, Booker T. Washington, which I believe most people have heard of, um, was dedicated to black education. And he actually went to, I'd say, the great entrepreneurs of the day, um, Carnegie, uh, Rosenwald. Rockefeller. Rosenwald. Yeah. And then in Rosenwald. So there was a partnership between Booker T. Washington and Rosenwald. And I think this is one of the only, uh, I think, acts of philanthropy that has actually helped anybody. But we see Most that. But we, but we see that today in the form of charter schools, where you have black and and white coming together, or Latino and white coming together in terms of money and the students that are being helped. Yeah, but I, I would say it's 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 on such a small scale. True. Uh, I I think that is mostly you know rich guy. Uh, they give ten million dollars to a school, and then you know they. You know, they throw their name on it and everybody sells, you know, celebrates them as a good guy. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, you know, Chicago Public Schools has a, I don't know, a $10 billion uh, budget. But I, none of those things, in my view, compare to the partnership between Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington. Julius Rosenwald was a Jewish immigrant. 
And he and some other guys said, what is happening to blacks in the United States is wrong. It's what's happening to Jews in, in Europe, and we should do something. Well, what he did is he partnered with Booker T. Washington, and mostly he was in the background. They put up, he put up money, and Julius Rosenwald was the CEO of Sears. He put up money, and they built 5,200 schools. Right. The black, the black, uh, the black families that were sent their kids there had to put some money into the schools. And black built those schools. When we come back with entrepreneur Robert Blackwell, we'll discuss how minority programs in the business world actually work versus how they should work. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. We're back with entrepreneur Robert Blackwell. And before the break, uh, you were talking about uh, funding for minority business programs after I made the comparison to the tax credit scholarships and so fast forward to today, and what is, uh, uh, is there anything comparable to that or, or a, a vision for what would be comparable to that in 2020? I mean, for example, in Illinois, we've got this, uh, you know, 500 million over five years tax credit program where you can pull a lot of uh, small dollar donors with big dollar donors to provide scholarships for, you know, mostly lower income students, which tend to be disproportionately minority I mean, that's 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 one example of a school choice program. Uh, But I know education is not necessarily your sole focus. You need you're talking about partnerships beyond education in the business world. I think if you look at history and you look at how people go from poverty to prosperity, first of all, you have to ask yourself a question. Where in the world are poor people healthy, educated and safe? The answer is nowhere. Conversely, we're affluent people, not healthy, educated. The answer is nowhere. So how do people go from poverty to prosperity? There's a pathway. It is entrepreneurial-led economic activity that leads to the appreciation of education. So it is a fallacy that education leads. Education doesn't lead. It is entrepreneurial participation that leads. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about from a community Mm -hmm. that creates the appreciation of education and then social capital. Social capital is when you reach back and you pull people along from your own community. But more importantly, you create an aspirational roadmap for your young people so they know where to place their bets. So if you just try this experiment, name two famous black entrepreneurs that don't have anything to do with entertainment. Almost nobody can do it because there barely there are any. There's a couple. There's one now who's become prominent, Robert Smith, yeah. who's a finance guy. Right. But in general, black kids, all they see is entertainment, which I'm including sports and entertainment. Now, if I was to ask you to name some wealthy black entertainers or people that came out of sports, I mean, we would be talking all day. So the market is telling black kids, place your bet on entertainment. The same way it tells Dominican kids, place your bet on baseball or Brazilian kids to place their bets on 
soccer or Jamaican kids that place their bet on track or Canadian kids that place their bet on hockey. And then the social capital you're talking about, so then the, the give back, what, what is that telling kids to place their bets? It's after-school programs through, some, through somebody's foundation. It's, uh, it's, giving, it's giving, Chance the Rapper, giving to the Chicago public school system. Place <laughs> your bet on government. Where is the give back? Where's the expenditure of social capital in the direction of developing entrepreneurs? Well, there's a difference between charity and social capital. Charity and social capital are not the same thing. Social capital is when you create opportunities for people, not that you give a bunch of charity. No, I understand. Charity. I understand, but I mean, but but it's but they're going in the same direction. the The opportunities that are being extended, uh, if it, it you know, follows the checks that are being written. And so what direction are those going? I mean, for those who have the means and the, the platform, it, it doesn't seem to me like it's a focus on entrepreneurship. It's a focus on the social capital is essentially being used in the same way that the money is as charity rather than as extending opportunity. I think that is, that is that's, that's, correct. I think there would be a lot bigger payoff if people just did business. That's it. You do business with people that have some capability. And I'll give you an example. There was a, a really large company based in Cincinnati, and I got to know the chairman because he asked me to be on the board uh, of a not-for-profit board. Because I'm the, I'm the only libertarian on that board. And I told him about how fake the minority business programs are. And he said, no, 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 no. Our company is really – we're really committed to these diversity minority programs. I said, well, I don't think so. But we can, we'll see. But he said, no, no, I'm going to prove it to you. He took me to meet their CIO, the black lady, and their head of diversity. And frankly, most people, black people who are in business, whenever you get pushed to the diversity coordinator, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> so long story short, went and met with her. And kind of after the meeting, she told me just directly. She said, Robert, you know what? We don't do business with black people. The black lady told me this. And she said, because every time we do business with them, it never works out. And I said, well, let me guess why. You've got a diversity program. You pay somebody $60,000 to teach people how to be in business. And then the people that come out of that don't know how to do business. She said, oh, yeah, how'd you know that? Mm -hmm. I said, because that's, that's how it works. Why don't you go and find somebody that has figured out how to be in business? I've never met an entrepreneur that came out of an entrepreneurial program. Uh-huh. Well, so, 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 so last question, unfortunately, then, then we got to run. But you've identified the problem and the fraud that's being perpetrated, and that's important. So then for those who are truly interested – Entrepreneurs truly interested in providing social capital to uh, black entrepreneurs. You know, part of the problem, as far as my from my perspective, is genuine interest, genuine openness, and just can't find the intersection point. How do I get to the uh, the uh, the the Robert Blackwell in every sector of uh, of business in in America? You know, I I would say this. So I'll keep this short. There's a group called the Business Leadership Council here in Chicago. The website's blcchicago.com. And we have something called the Lead Partner Program. The way the Lead Partner Program works, it says just do business with a black company 
in a meaningful way. And then the black company has three responsibilities. One is to identify a clear value proposition for your customer, because if you can't do that, you can't be in business. And then if, because you've got a special opportunity, you should take on some special responsibility. So you would then have to take on the role of the mentor. So bring some preferably younger black companies into your deal. And then three, take on some community enrichment responsibility. Uh, things we do is we have a mowers and blowers program, kind of help uh, give microfinance for people who are doing landscaping businesses. We're going to be doing a housing for tutoring exchange where you give honorable black college students a place to live in exchange for mentoring and tutoring elementary and high school kids. I've helped a number of uh, younger black talented people in tech start their companies. So there are talented blacks out there. The problem is you cannot have a business without a customer. And if you're black, people look at you like you're a child, unfortunately, mm. and you have to go through one of their, it's like people cannot believe that you can do anything without some special rich guy program that you have to go through. And I think that is why we don't have Black Wall Street because uh, people don't do business. The, the, the website at uh, blcchicago.com? Yes, sir. BLCChicago.com, the lead partner program. I know we've spoken about that before as well. Robert Blackwell, wish we had more time, but thanks so much for joining us. Founder, of C Founder and CEO of EKI Digital, CEO of Killer Spin. Robert Blackwell, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Following our conversation with uh, Black entrepreneur Robert Blackwell, I uh, feel compelled to set uh, the historical record straight after listening to Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. You may remember him from such ill-fated runs as being Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016. Well, uh, he is either the most ignorant or he is the most craven member of the U.S. Senate based on what he said in a floor discussion of police reform legislation advanced by his colleagues, Senators Harris and Booker. And, and it just has to be set straight. We were talking a little bit of history with Blackwell We'll be talking a little bit more history and theology with Everett Piper coming up. Uh, but Cain should not be allowed to get away with rewriting world history while he and his leftist Jacobin friends are rewriting American history. Here's first what Cain said about the origins of slavery. The first African-Americans into the English colonies came to Point Comfort, Virginia in 1619. They were slaves. They'd been captured against their will. But they landed in colonies that didn't have slavery. There were no laws about slavery in the colonies at that time. The United States didn't inherit slavery from anybody. We created it. It got created by the Virginia General Assembly and the legislatures of other states. It got 
created by the court systems in colonial America and since that enforced fugitive slave laws. It was we created it. We created slavery, America. And this is not a rationalization for the barbaric institution and the the, the shame that uh, America rightly feels for allowing slavery to exist in contravention to the principles stated in our founding documents. This is you have to understand world history, by the way, to present day, because there are still parts of the world where slavery is a real thing. And it's interesting. Thomas Sowell notes this. It's interesting how uninterested the left is, those spending all their time decrying the slavery that existed in America 170 years ago uh, and existed for several centuries prior to prior to that, prior to the emancipation, of course, they spend all their time decrying that. And there's no interest in focusing on people enslaved in in the present day world that could actually be helped only on those who unfortunately can no longer be helped. Well, speaking of Thomas Sowell, Tim Kaine's comments got me to go back and reread part of Thomas Sowell's excellent book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, fun title, from 2005. And, um, Here's a segment from the audiobook version of it on uh, the history of slavery, a little tutorial for Tim Kaine and his acolytes. Slavery was an evil of greater scope and magnitude than most people imagine. And as a result, its place in history is radically different from the way it is usually portrayed. Mention slavery, and immediately the image that arises is that of Africans and their descendants enslaved by Europeans and their descendants in the southern United States or at most, Africans enslaved by Europeans in the Western Hemisphere. No other historic horror is so narrowly construed. No one thinks of war, famine, or decimating epidemics in such localized terms. These are afflictions that have been suffered by the entire human race all over the planet, and so was slavery. Had slavery been limited to one race in one country during three centuries, its tragedies would not have been one-tenth the magnitude that they were in fact. Why this provincial view of a worldwide evil? Often, it is those who are most critical of a Eurocentric view of the world who are most Eurocentric when it comes to the evils and failings of the human race. Hmm. Why would anyone wish to arbitrarily understate an evil that plagued mankind for thousands of years, unless it was not this evil itself that was the real concern, but rather the present-day uses of that historic evil? Clearly, the ability to score ideological points against American society or Western civilization, or to induce guilt and thereby extract benefits from the white population today, are greatly enhanced by making enslavement appear to be a peculiarly American or a peculiarly white crime. Uh, One other point uh, that Sol makes to get to here, too, just thinking about its evolution, the evolution of slavery the world over, um, in addition to the point that he makes about Tim Kaine, not knowing it would be applicable to Tim Kaine 15 years ago when he wrote the book, but it certainly was per Tim Kaine's comments. The instrumental use of the history of slavery today also underlies the claim that slavery grew out of racism. For most of its long history, which includes most of the history of the human race, slavery was largely not the enslavement of racially different people for the simple reason that only in recent centuries has either the technology or the wealth existed to go to another continent to get slaves and transport them en masse across an ocean. People were enslaved because they were vulnerable, not because of how they looked. That's how it started. And then, of course, the ability to travel allowed for uh, additional exploitation, as did occur. A little history lesson. So you decide, Tim Kaine, 
the most ignorant or the most craven member of the U.S. Senate? This is Dan Prof. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. to the Dan Prof Show. Boy Scouts bend the knee. Boy Scouts, oh, I, I'm sorry, excuse me, Scouts. The Boy Scouts of America announced that it is adding a new diversity and inclusion merit badge in honor of the Black Lives Matter movement, saying it will be required by young members to achieve the highest rank of Eagle Scout. Once you start erasing lines, as the Boy Scouts started doing, by buying into the redefinition of marriage and redefinition of gender, you just never stop erasing lines, do you? A, a former member of the Labor Party who served in the British Parliament and, and was kicked out, demanding that Kellogg's justify why Rice Krispies is represented by three white boys, while Cocoa Pops' mascot is a monkey. Not kidding. Not the onion. I always did have my suspicions that Crackle could be a white supremacist, though. So I think I know where she's going. How to topple a statue using science, a story in popular mechanics. Serious. Again, not from the Onion, not from the Babylon Bee. Popular mechanics, how to topple a statue using science. And, uh, you know, perhaps um, most uh, jarring of all has been the conduct of some men of the cloth in uh, recent days. And for more on that, in addition to our general cultural suicide, Pleased to be joined again by Everett Piper, columnist for The Washington Times. You may remember him as the university president at Oklahoma Wesleyan University as well. He's uh, the author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Boy, aren't we realizing them in real time. Everett Piper, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Did you want to join our petition to have Snap, Crackle, and Pop removed from the uh, Kellogg's Rice Krispies box? You said it's not the onion, it's not the Babylon Bee, it's not satire, it's real. And this is what happens. This is the subtitle of my book. When you abandon the objectivity of truth, and when you start to use your language, eliminating all the lines that are clear and that define the reality of our existence, lines that have been given to us by God, and we start deconstructing that and then reconstructing culture in our own image, when we start worshiping the God we see in the mirror rather than the God we see in the Bible, History tells us it does not end well. In fact, go back to Greek mythology. The lesson of Narcissus is that self-worship always ends in suicide. So if you want to deconstruct culture, if you want to create a new world in your own image, that world will be very short-lived because you're going to be given over to the destruction of lies. Uh, Chesterton told us you get rid of the big laws, you don't get liberty. You get thousands of little laws that rush in to fill the vacuum. We got rid of the big laws, ten of them. We couldn't live by those. So what do we see today? This lunacy coming out of the Supreme Court and coming out of all these other stories you just mentioned. Speak to that a little bit more, because um, one of the things I, I wanted to get your comment on, oh, yeah, that's silly, but it's a little thing. You don't understand. The, the Jacobins make no distinction between the quote-unquote big things and the quote-unquote little things. It's everything. That's why it's called totalitarian. Yes. 
And you know in my recent columns, I refer to the church's complicity in this particular purge of culture. It's the woke purge. It's evangelical pastors that are marching through this identity politics under the banner of Black Lives Matter, for example. Black Lives Matter on their website says that they're a neo-Marxist movement that seeks to queer the nuclear family and destroy cisgender heteronormative thinking in Western civilization. But yet you've got evangelical woke pastors under the banner of the gospel that are marching in complicity with this dumbing down of human identity, nothing but to melanin and the color of a person's skin. Whatever happened to Martin Luther King's charge to judge us by character, character as defined by God, rather than suggesting that the human being, insulting human beings by suggesting that they're nothing more than skin deep, they have no mind, they have no soul, they're an it, to quote Martin Luther King Jr., an it rather than an thou. They are nothing but a collection of adjectives, its, rather than the amado day, the image of God, the thou that has been created by a creator. We're worshiping ourselves rather than him. There was something else in addition to the um, pandering to Black Lives Matter, all caps, uh, their first letter caps, Black Lives Matter, the organization. And it was uh, evangelical scholars issuing this statement that racism runs counter to the gospel. Yeah, no kidding. If you have to make that statement, you're doing your evangelical scholarship wrong. But it seemed to me that that sort of water is wet type of statement that is put into the public arena is a sort of another act of genuflection or another act of a a desire to be liked and recognized as on your side. It's a plea, really, more than it is a stand for what we know to be true, I thought. It's a desire to be woke rather than a desire to be right. You want to be popular, and popularity is not necessarily a definition of what is just and right and real. And with regard to race, here's the biblical error. Here's the ontological error of this claim of race and racism. Vody Bakum, who is a, happens to be a man that is of black color, and I say it that way because he would resist being hyphenated as an African-American and dumbing down his definition to nothing but the depth of his skin. He would resist that. Vody Bakum says this, race is a lie. There is no such thing as race in the Bible. It is not there. We are one race. We are Adam's race. We are the human race. And these artificial definitions that have been constructed by anthropology and post-modernity are not biblical. We need to go back and recognize there's unity in the Bible, not diversity in the Bible. For example, I was the president of a university. I wasn't the president of a diversity. And there's a reason for that, because the academy, the ivory tower, was grounded in the truth shall set you free, the words of Christ, the unity of the gospel and the good news. It wasn't a call for division. It was a call to come together under the banner of truth. Vody Bakum gets that. We define ourselves as the Omago Dei, created in the image of God, not divide ourselves into these separate categories of a bunch of its rather than thou's. Everett Piper, columnist for the Washington Times, former uh, university president, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Everett Piper, always good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Blessings. Take care.
more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Boy, Google really is spoiling for antitrust prosecution, isn't it? Talk about giving uh, those uh, like uh, Senator Josh Howley grist for the mill. David Harsani has a nice summary of what happened over at NationalReview.com. NBC News reporting that two sites, Zero Hedge and The Federalist, Tyler Durden Territory, Zero Hedge, Federalist. We've had many, many Federalist writers, contributors on this show that you've heard. Zero Hedge and Federalist have been banned from generating revenue through Google ads. Google spokesperson initially telling ABC News that Google took action after determining the websites violated its policies on content related to race. Difficult to identify exactly what uh, initially exactly what uh, Google was talking about. The Google posted the Federalist published an article claiming that media had been lying about looting and violence during the protests, which were both included in the report sent to Google. Harsani comments, there is plenty of justification for the offending argument. Major networks have consistently downplayed the rioting and looting that have taken place over the past few weeks because activity, such activity undermines the notion that Black Lives Matter is wholly peaceful. You may disagree with the characterization, but it's certainly not bigoted. Black Lives Matter shouldn't be shielded from criticism. No one should be, writes Harsani. Turns out the same Google spokesperson is a bit over, all over the map on the story. Telling Adweek NBC News got the story wrong that Google only notified the Federalist it could be demonetized and that it was the site's comment section that was in violation, not anything that one of its contributors had written. Then Google told Adweek the site would be demonetized, but the Federalist could rectify the situation. Both comments run in contradiction to the initial statement made by Google, not to mention the entire NBC story. Uh, But there is your... um, D.C. press corps for you. And I include Google in the mix because uh, that's about what Josh Howley's ready to do. Josh Howley noting the uh, Google declaration that it was the comment section of the Federalist website that was in violation of their policy on reporting on race. Josh Howley tweeting, wait, wait, you want to treat the Federalist comment section, which they don't curate as their speech? But simultaneously say the content you directly host and modify is not your speech under Section 230. Wow, this is getting really interesting. You don't want to hear the phrase, wow, this is getting really interesting from a former state attorney general and now U.S. senator who has otherwise been chomping at the bit to see you face an antitrust uh, antitrust prosecution and have some of your immunities under Section 230 removed. Uh, and, and in point of fact, um, uh, he's right to make the statement in this case. I mean, Google is w- without foundation, both in terms of what they did and because of what they did, what they're arguing in terms of why they should keep the liability protection they currently enjoy. I mean, could you imagine if they had to be responsible for the comment sections in YouTube, on YouTube, and all the YouTube videos that are posted, the way they're suggesting the Federalist has to be responsible for its comment sections with respect to the articles posted on that site. The day of reckoning for Google um, may be coming, and uh, it may need to come, and before November 3rd. This is Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. The D.C. press corps is still committed to uh, its narrative on COVID-19 and doing the best they can to whip people or to continue to keep people in a state of frenzy and pandemonium the way they're covering the uh, case numbers in states that uh, were first to really begin their reopening. Mike Pence had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. There isn't a coronavirus, quote-unquote, second wave, at least not at present. While talk of an increase in cases dominates cable news coverage, more than half the states are actually seeing cases decline or remain stable. Every state, territory, and major metropolitan area, with the exception of three, have positive test rates under 10%. Uh, And nationally, less than 6% of Americans tested each week are found to have the virus. Cases have stabilized over the past two weeks with daily average case rate across the U.S. dropping to 20,000, down from 30,000 in April and 25,000 in May. In the past five days, deaths are down to fewer than 750 a day, a dramatic decline from 2,500 a day a few weeks ago, and a far cry from the 5,000 a day that some were predicting. That's Mike Pence. And uh, Dr. John Ionetti's, who is the Stanford epidemiologist, uh, he gave an, an interview to uh, Michael Schmirkanish on CNN recently. Uh, he's the one who was seen as one of the leading scientists in the world right up until a couple of months ago when he disputed the models that predicted end times, that predicted millions of deaths as based on junk assumptions. And Ioannidis was correct. And here's what he says about the state of things looking at uh, what the real world is telling us and why the lockdowns need to end. For the average person being infected, the risk of having severe disease and the risk of dying is much lower than we thought. So uh, it is a common and mild infection. At the same time, it can be a devastating infection. There's no doubt about this. But by now we have learned where exactly it hits and, and where it can be devastating. It can be devastating for when it hits nursing homes. It can be devastating when it hits hospitals, infects personnel, physician staff, and then we have hospitalized patients getting infected. Uh, we, we see that paradox uh, in many people, for example, in children and in young adults. It is less severe than the common flu. In middle-aged people, it's about the same. In nursing homes and in uh, Hospitals that get infected massively, it it can be a disaster. So we can use that knowledge to try to navigate into that spectrum, try the settings and the individuals who are at highest risk, same time probably have some optimism about the prospects of uh, reopening our society before we get uh, many adverse consequences by prolonged uh, lockdown measures. Mm -hmm. Last night, I spoke with Dr. Thomas Yadiger, who's a pulmonologist and medical director of the intensive care unit at Providence Cedar sinai Tarzana Medical Center in L.A. And he said this about the uh, promise of, uh, of uh, dexamethasone. Yes, it's obviously very exciting news. Um, I think that still the devil's in the detail, but uh, dexedron, dexamethasone is an immunosuppressive medication. It's actually a very, very strong one. Um, 
in a subset of patients, we were already using different types. We were using hydrocortisone for patients that had problems with their blood pressure, and uh, we're also using solumedrol as part of a, in a well-established uh, trial for acute lung injury. But dexamethasone is much, much stronger um, than those medications. And, um, you know, if the data is proven to be true, then this would be, you know, revolutionary and can uh, obviously help a lot of people. Revolutionary. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Phil Kirp, and he's the president of American Commitment, chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition as well. And he recently testified on COVID-19, particularly as it pertains to uh, nursing homes and some of what uh, Dr. Ioannidis was talking about uh, before a House Select uh, Subcommittee on Coronavirus. Phil, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you. Good to be with you. And uh, give us the top line of the testimony that you provided to that House Select Subcommittee. I uh, walked through a lot of what you just said, uh, the highly age-stratified risk that, you know, this doesn't look like the classic U-shaped age stratification of the flu. We have a J-shaped age stratification, virtually no deaths at all among the very young, little in the middle age, and then a very steep rise when we get to old age. And in particular in the U.S. now, the age stratification for COVID-19 deaths has 60% 60% of the deaths above age 75 and 80% of the deaths above age 65, and they're heavily concentrated in the nursing homes. And we don't have complete data, so this number will continue to rise, but the most recent data we have has about 55% of all COVID-19 deaths outside the state of New York in residents of long-term care facilities. And the reason I say outside the state of New York is New York will not give us a real number. New York. Uh, Deliberately underreports. Uh, they report a fake number of about 6,300, but they have a giant footnote on it, an asterisk that says we only count uh, deaths that occurred physically inside the long-term care facility, which is probably a fraction of the total deaths of long-term care residents. Because in most circumstances, uh, someone is very sick, they'll call 911 at the nursing home, they'll go to the hospital, and they're more likely to die at the hospital uh, than in the uh, in the nursing home itself. And if you look at the national, if you look at the data outside. New York, we have 55% of the deaths among long-term care residents, but only 26% of the deaths occurred physically inside the long-term care facility. So more than half were at the hospital. So uh, it's very unlikely in our judgment that New York is different than that, which means their real number is probably at least double what they report. And it could be triple what they report, in which case the national number would be 50% of the deaths in long-term care facility residents. So we really need a real number from New York to understand the full size and, and scope of this thing and the extent to which it's really in the nursing homes where the real risk is. But we do know that more than half of the deaths are there, and that's very significant because if the numbers were reported on that basis regularly, then the perceived risk in the rest of the population would be much lower and we would be putting more resources into protecting the people who are most vulnerable because we've largely uh, done the opposite to this point. And, of course, you've seen in Illinois, you only get these weekly reports on Fridays, but every week the percentage that's in the nursing homes goes up as they get more complete data, and uh, I think you're at about 55% now, so you're around the national average. Last week it was you know, 80% in the weekly. So you're seeing something very similar to the rest of the country there. And, of course, Illinois is one of the seven states that I pointed out to Congress that has or had this disastrous policy of immediately, as soon as patients in hospitals are clinically stable, returning them to nursing homes, even though they're still infectious. And it's really been the states that have that policy that have had the very large death numbers. Since uh, there are such fans of uh, contact tracing, at least using that to sound scientific or science-driven, how about contact tracing all those infected individuals they sent back into nursing homes? That, that would be illustrative as well. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you figure, you know, I mean, you know, the, the seven states that that have had this policy, and most of them no longer do, but, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell. And I don't know exactly how Illinois is now handling post-acute care, if they're still sending them back into the nursing homes or if they have designated facilities or have improved this in some way. But, you know, the seven states that either have or have had this policy – New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Illinois, and Michigan, they account for more than 60% of all the COVID-19 deaths in the country and more than 60% of the deaths in nursing homes. And so the high volume uh, states that have really driven the national epidemic all have had this policy of sending infectious patients into the buildings with the most vulnerable people, which is just an insane policy. And, and yet they do this the same time they lock down the general population, close schools, tell young people they can't go to work. And they justify all of that by saying, you've got to do it to protect grandma. But they're sending infectious people into grandma's nursing home. It's insane. Well, and then, of course, thinking about this prospectively, I mean, based on, you know, if that Oxford therapeutic turns out to be as effective as advertised, it just doesn't seem like there's any scientific basis for these continued lockdown policies or the slow walk to reopen in states like New York, New Jersey, Illinois. Here we go again, Michigan, naming the same states that are the problem the states. states. That have had it bad are actually the ones that should be the most open because it means almost the whole population that's going to get sick probably already has. And you see that in the positivity numbers in the states that were really bad. They're now the least positive. So it's sort of the, it's farthest along. They're sort of past the whole epidemic curve. And so rather than being the most cautious, they should probably be the most aggressive in opening. But the interesting thing to me about these steroid studies, and this is the second steroid study that's been very, very promising, this dexmethasone study out of the U.K. There was one out of Spain last month for methylprednisolone or uh, Medrol, which is a very commonly used uh, systemic steroid and was similarly effective. I think they found it was like 40 percent effective in preventing death in severe cases. And I think dexmethasone, they found something like 33 the WHO, going back to March, told doctors all over the world, do not use steroids. The normal treatment for a viral pneumonia includes steroids, and yet the World Health Organization was adamant that doctors not use steroids for this. And here we are three months later, and we're getting trials saying that steroids are highly effective. So well, this is another yeah. stunning example of the World Health Organization really putting things on the wrong path. Yes, I mean, it's, now it would be newsworthy if the WHO got anything right. Uh, Phil yeah, Kirp- yeah they, they're keeping their perfect record intact of being wrong on everything. Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment, chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, have a good one. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show interesting piece at realclearpolitics.com about um, our entertainment industry and china Obviously, it has been much discussed over the last year and a half or so as uh, people became generally aware of the tight relationship between the NBA and China. Those paying attention to how Hollywood movies are financed. We understand the importance of the Chinese market, Chinese investment, but also the Chinese market in terms of making money on Hollywood movies. And there's been other scandals, uh, the Malaysian government uh, embezzlement scandal that actually looped in uh, Leo DiCaprio because of the financiers of his Wolf of Wall Street film. And so um, interested to uh, get a perspective from uh, somebody who knows Hollywood that uh, the breakup is coming. 
I hope that doesn't uh, derail LeBron James's acting career. Uh, for more on this, pleased to be joined by Chris Fenton. He's a producer, former president of DMG Entertainment, and author of Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma, Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business, which is scheduled for release at the end of next month, July 28th. So I'm sure you can pre-order on Amazon and all such borders, all such other places. Chris Fenton, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. You uh, start out your piece saying, you know, this seemed to be a a perfect match, a market of a billion people and uh, the leading incubators of entertainment work product in the world coming together uh, in a mutually beneficial relationship. That's the vision of it. That's maybe how it was working in part, but it doesn't seem to be working anymore. Give us the uh, the trajectory of this relationship. Well, it's not just a Hollywood situation. Obviously, there's U.S. companies that look towards the China market in the very early days of capitalism between the two countries, which a lot of historians will say happened right around 1979. My feeling is that it really didn't get or generate any real momentum until Shortly after the Tiananmen Square incident in 1989, the growth trajectory of many companies, and you mentioned the NBA earlier, was massive once they started to set foot over there, put together teams on the ground there, start to collaborate with the government in regards to how to get access to that massive consumer base. And then through the 90s, it built up. Hollywood, which I've been a big part of my whole career, really started to get interested in China around the year 2000. And a lot of that had to do with sort of the start of a fledgling theater business, a handful of movie titles getting in there, the outlook of where that market could go, et cetera. But it really started to accelerate post the 2008 Olympics. And that was the period where the CCP said, okay, here are a variety of different industries. We're going to strive to make world-class And the film industry was one of those. At that point, they didn't even have 5,000 screens. And keep in mind, in the U.S., we have roughly 40,000. They went to 5,000 screens almost immediately. And then cut to today, there are over 70,000 screens there. So that gives you an idea just on the exhibition side of how fast that growth trajectory has been. And then if you extrapolate that to revenues, it follows essentially the same curve. The documentary One Child Nation is perhaps the best documentary I've seen on the uh, propagandizing that the Chinese communists do to their own people, uh, brainwashing them to support the ghoulish policy that they supported for 35 years and, frankly, uh, are now still supporting. Just It's just the two-child policy because the one-child policy created a bit of a, a gender imbalance in the country. Imagine that happening. Look, I try to come at it from a nonpartisan and try to see both sides of the equation as best as possible. I've gotten hawkish over the years for sure. But one of the things that you got to keep in mind is the narrative that the populace gets is one single narrative. It is the party narrative. So people ask me, well, what's like, how do you compare that to the United States? And I say, well, imagine if you had Prager and Glenn Beck and Fox News and MSNBC and CNN and Don Lemon and and Rachel Maddow all saying the exact same thing all the time. And that's all anybody in the United States got for news and messaging. Well, that's what's happening in China, right? right. So those, right. that's yes. all they know. Yes. Right? That's no, all they I, know. I, I get it. Yeah, I get it. I thought that it came through very nicely in the One Child Nation doc. But, uh, but, but so then how does the relationship 
start to strain. It can't just be uh, Trump and tariffs. There has to be more to it than that. And and I assume with public facing industries like Hollywood and the NBA, for example, boy, that moment where the NBA was exposed for uh, uh, criticizing that Houston Rockets GM for criticizing China communist treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China, that was really um, expository moment for the NBA versus their domestic market here in the United States. I assume part of that is the basis of the distancing. We just can't be a part of the sort of oppression that's going on in China. I mean, that's a great question. Just with the first one, how has the bifurcation started? Like, how is the tension created? I mean, there's various things that have come to light. You got the trade war, the Hong Kong situation. You have the Uyghur controversy, information war. Our middle class has been decimated by all the manufacturing that's moved over there. You got the South China Sea conflict. Taiwan's an issue. That supply chain disruption that COVID has brought to light has brought a, a sure. you know a major problem with national security. And then obviously COVID. The NBA situation was really startling to me personally because I had a, I was about to deliver my book, this colorful journey of working between the two countries and all the you know different challenges and antagonists and the protagonists and the emotional you know hook that happened with my kids and my wife as I journeyed through that. And I thought to myself as a globalist. I did a lot of amazing stuff. Like we really opened that market to make money for U.S. companies there. But then when when that Daryl Morey tweet came out, the Houston Rockets GM, it totally shook me because I thought to myself, oh, my God, what he just said and the way the NBA reacted to it in this pandering type of fashion is what I had been doing all these years. Like I had been towing the party line because remember in china if you want to sell products and services there you have to sell first to the government then you get access to the consumer Mm -hmm. but as you're selling to the government you're doing a lot of pandering you're doing a lot of that stuff that the nba was guilty of as were all of us so i had to go in and fix a lot of the parts of the book to add a little bit of commentary to the fact that geez like i was doing stuff that people feel was making me part of it and and the complicit nature of what we were doing there as globalists. And now we need to change that moving forward. So one of the things that I really hope a reader takes away from the book is we weren't all evil capitalists that were trying to sell out America. We just got caught up in the fog of war of globalism is great. Free trade is great. Just make it happen. Right. That was that was the mantra we live by. We never thought of the repercussions of that. But now that we're woke to it, to use that word that's so overused, yeah. we need to change. He is Chris Fenton. He's a Hollywood producer, former president of DMG Entertainment, author of the forthcoming book, Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. That uh, releases on July 28th. Look forward to that. Pre-order it on Amazon in advance of its formal release. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Look forward to the book, and good luck with that. Hey, I really appreciate you having me on. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show with the uh, purge that is ongoing. You uh, best figure out how to redefine or reimagine yourself or your organization in line with the Jacobins or else. And so a rush of corporate rebranding and uh, and and uh, changing the public face of various organizations, uh, offering some pay on to the mob in some form or fashion. Uh, mostly this has been along the lines of race after the George Floyd murder, uh, alleged murder, and uh, the resulting unrest. But it also includes, with respect to uh, LGBTQ, uh, not only with Pride Month, but now with the Supreme Court's redefinition, I would argue, of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Chadwick Moore, columnist for Spectator USA, former editor-at-large of Out Magazine and The Advocate. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me back. Well, uh, you wrote a piece about something I gave short shrift to, and maybe I was wrong, I, the uh, outing of SpongeBob SquarePants as gay, uh, <laughs> coinciding with Pride the Pride Month beginning. Um, and I just suggested this was about the most shocking uh, Hollywood outing or entertainment uh, industry outing since Liberace. But, uh, but, but you give... <laughs> You give uh, uh, really the abstract of what could be a doctoral thesis for an Ivy League school breaking down SpongeBob SquarePants and uh, the import of this, uh, what you term a, a PR stunt that Nickelodeon did. Explain. Right. Well, you know, it really got me thinking about uh, who SpongeBob might have uh, crossed at uh, Nickelodeon Viacom or perhaps maybe who he voted for, because as we all know, it is not appropriate to drag someone out of the closet, even if it's a cartoon sponge. So uh, unless that person, of course, a Republican or uh, voted for Trump. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, you know, if you, if you recall not too long ago, there was an incident of a, a certain almost governor of Florida who was found in a uh, 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 quite um, body situation in a hotel room with a couple of men, Andrew Gillum. Right. And, uh, you know, we're not supposed to acknowledge the, the clear implications of uh, what's going on in his private life, married, father of three. Um, but, you know, constantly uh, we've got um, people trying to drag uh, uh, Lindsey Graham out of the closet for saying that he might be gay. And um, and now they've been at the SpongeBob. So, you know, makes me wonder who SpongeBob might have voted for. Well, also, too, I mean, you uh, start to go through the whole cast of uh, SpongeBob, and I, I'm just not as familiar with it as you are, or you made yourself. Um, uh, the What happens next to uh, SpongeBob's confidant, Sandy Cheeks? Uh, it's a question on everyone's mind. Well, she, Sandy Cheeks is, uh, I did have to, uh, to familiarize myself with, uh, with, the, with, the, with the cast of characters uh, that live there in Bikini Bottom. And uh, Sandy Cheeks is a squirrel in a... Uh, <laughs> In an in a underwater suit, yeah. uh, but quite unwomanly, uh, quite butch. So uh. that raises some questions. And, uh, uh, you know, then we've got uh, SpongeBob is very close with his best friend, Patrick, who's a starfish. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's, this is a, um, a lot of a, when a third party outs someone, and in this case being a multinational media conglomerate, uh, that could have really serious personal uh, impact on people's personal relationships. So maybe his best friend didn't know, and now he feels betrayed, confused, 
you know, maybe hopefully he doesn't uh, get violent with SpongeBob. That's been known to happen. People might now think that they're lovers. Uh, so quite irresponsible move on Nickelodeon's part. Uh, and uh, LGBT activists would be the first one to tell you that um, if uh, if they if they like SpongeBob, but I guess they don't. I don't know. Patrick, is that a starfish in your pocket, or are you just no? I I'm actually a starfish. Um, that's not a very by the way. That's not a very creative name for a starfish. Every SpongeBob this and sandy cheeks and bikini bottom. And it's just Patrick, just Patrick the starfish. No, no seaworthy uh, nickname. Um, so, but, so, so part of this, though, of course, uh, the more serious aspect of this is it's a children's show, and uh, and why would you want to subject your children? I mean, you know, like uh, primary grade children into to uh, sexuality in a cart from a cartoon, regardless of the nature of it. Right. That's the, that's and that is the the bigger question is is why even do this and and, and uh, it, it, yeah there, there's something kind of twisted and sick about it. Whenever this happens, when they bring these subjects into children's programming, uh, they did it with um, what's that show Arthur, I think, on, on PBS uh, with one of the characters on there. And uh, why even bring it bring it in there? Why have to, why do you have to suddenly? Sexualized SpongeBob SquarePants. When we come back, I want to get uh, your status update on the Glexit uh, movement. Uh, more with Chadwick Moore, columnist for Spectator USA, former editor at large of Out Magazine, and the advocate right after. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Chad McMore, columnist for Spectator USA and former editor-at-large of Out Magazine and The Advocate. And uh, Chadwick, I wanted to get your perspective on a couple of uh, developments this week, most notably the Supreme Court case on... Uh, civil rights protections being extended to uh, persons based on their sexual orientation or sexual identity. But before that, uh, what's the status of the so-called Glexit movement uh, in your estimation, the gays and lesbians leaving the Democrat Party? Uh, any consideration, not just for Trump, but including Trump in terms of their votes come November? I think that it seems to me that you might see a record number of people voting Republican in 2020. You know, the president likes to use the term silent majority and all that. It's not a majority by any means, but I think just in my anecdotal experience, there's just so many gay people who are so entirely set up with the left. They're being to see the lies. They've sort of taken the gay movement and mashed it into trans and Black Lives Matter and anything else they can throw together to just sort of like lump of social justice that I think most normal thing gay people are like, yeah, I didn't sign up. For, like, this is weird. I think that if they don't vote for Trump, they'll at least stay home. No one's really all that excited about Joe Biden. If they can't bring themselves to vote Republican, there's at least a very strong contingent of people who are really anti-left and against what's happening with the left. I think there's a lot more kind of Bill Clinton-style Democrats among gay people. But all you really see in the media and out in the streets are the sort of far-left wackos who are – brains have been too poisoned by their college professors or what have you. So for some reason, you know, gay men have always had kind of a reputation for being rebellious and iconoclastic, and there's no other way to rebel in today's society unless you're against the Democrat Party, the media, that liberal establishment. That's the man. That is the establishment now. 
you have no other direction to go but to be against them if you want to uh, rebel against that. Uh, you tweeted out, um, I'm assuming, but I don't know if this was in context of the Supreme Court decision that I referenced. You tweeted out, being gay has always been an advantage. It got me work. It's called the Velvet Mafia, and it's real. Now, raise your hand if you've been fired for political wrong think, even if that wrong think was perfectly mainstream just 10 or five years ago. I have. So give us the context of that, uh, how you think being gay has been an advantage and how political wrong think is perhaps you seem to insinuate the bigger concern in terms of purging people. Right. Well, I was fired from Out Magazine and The Advocate, the two biggest gay magazines, because I wrote a piece coming out in the New York Post saying, you know, I'm politically conservative. I lean right. It's a very innocent piece. And I was just sort of saying, you know, I don't hate the. This was February 2017, right after the inauguration. And just said, you know, I don't hate the president. I believe in free speech. And that was just way too controversial. So I was fired immediately. So I know plenty of people have been fired for being Republican or Trump supporters, but I don't know a single person who's been fired for being gay. You know, if you live in a big city and you work in certain industries, especially media, you work in something creative, like those industries are swimming with gay people. And so you get into these networks and, of course, gay people want to help out other gay people. We call it the Velvet Mafia. You meet, you know, I met uh, lots of famous and rich gay people uh, just hang out in certain locations. I get to you know, network that way. It was always an advantage. And also, every gay person knows this. You play up the gay card and you get what you want in so many situations, you know, especially in big liberal cities. It's like it's not a secret. I think a lot of gay people secretly think that or, or, or acknowledge it, but they won't say it out loud. And so now the thinking about this, because this, I think there's obviously points of commonality between uh, conservatives, uh, social conservatives like myself and and uh, individuals like you who may have some different views on some of the issues, but have a lot of the similar views on many of the issues, too. And this is what's interesting about the Republican Party, how uh, the left spends all its time preaching tolerance and diversity. And it turns out the Republican Party is both more tolerant and more intellectually diverse at minimum. But I, I wonder then what your perspective is with respect to the Supreme Court decision this week, essentially equating uh, sexual orientation and sexual identity with race as it pertains to uh, private sector employment, secular private sector employment. Oh, it, it's terrible. The decision was terrible. And uh, it, it was uh, it, it's re, it's reinterpreting, a, you know, law from the 60s to to uh, equate sexual orientation with gender. Uh, it, so it, it seems like a, a judicial activism. It doesn't it shouldn't it. it how many gay people get a, a year get fired for being gay? Like what two? And that's what Catholic school teachers. So now it's saying that organizations uh, don't have that right. They absolutely should have that right. This is a problem that if it's a problem, it's something that the free market solved on its own. Okay, so like, what would happen if you got fired for being gay? Well, you call up you know Channel Five. They send the news crew out. You go viral. You get a million dollars in the GoFundMe, and you've got a thousand job offers in your um, <laughs> in your inbox. You know, like that was that's how it worked. So it's like, okay, you know, that's something that you didn't need a law because it just fixed itself. You know, you could the, the, the society fixed it. Um, so in order, so to reinterpret Title IX, I think it's a dangerous precedent. It wasn't necessary, it, and it wasn't a problem in our society. It, it, it would fix itself. So you take a, you it, take sort of a, a, a Milton Friedman view on this, uh, a famous exchange he had with a young college girl about uh, his opposition to um, uh, anti-discrimination laws that pertains to uh, equal pay and women in the workplace and stuff. And he said to the girl, you don't understand. I'm on your side. You're not. 
I want to punish the discriminator and the marketplace is the best way to do that because you're not hiring or you're firing someone not based on their ability, but based on their identity. And you're going to pay the price in the marketplace for that by making a law that you can't do that. Now you hide, you allow the discriminator to hide along with the non-discriminator. And uh, that's a government advantage that's conferred to the wrong person. There should be no advantage, but certainly you shouldn't confer an advantage to the person who should otherwise feel the consequences of his ignorance. And by passing laws like this, you don't allow that. That, I, I, absolutely. I, I, that's the, completely the view that I take. And even now, more than ever, where you've got social media and everyone has a, a camera in their pocket, uh, you, you have even more access to punish those people in the free market. Uh, justly or not, I mean, look at how many people have their lives ruined over incredibly stupid things because they're caught on a cell phone video saying something ignorant. Uh, but, but you have more access to get the word out and to shame those people and to punish them in the market. So you don't need laws for this stuff. So, and especially this, this, these weird decisions that, 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 kind of make no legal sense, and most people are looking at it and saying that. Uh, it's also interesting that Neil Gorsuch, Gorsuch, Gorsuch who was the, um, wrote, the, wrote the, uh, the opinion on it, and if you remember when he was nominated, the, the media, the left-wing media and the, and the gay activists were like, this is a travesty for LGBT rights, he's going to have us in camps, whatever they were saying. Right. And he's right. the one who did this. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Very, very interesting. Ironies abound these days. He is Chadwick Moore, a columnist for Spectator USA, former editor-at-large of Out Magazine and The Advocate. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Try to uh, end the program on an optimistic note. And uh, surprisingly, go back to uh, the Wall Street Journal's Future View column. This is the column I've been referencing. I don't, I'm fascinated by it. I like to get the mix of uh, short responses from college kids and uh, kids in postgraduate schools. On the uh, salient issues of the day, the Future View question for this installment, defund the police, your reactions. All right, let's get a couple. Jack Pugliese, who is a political science major at Union College, defunding the police doesn't get rid of all police funding. It means redistributing resources to serve the public. For example, allocating some money spent on policing to mental health services, community centers, urban housing programs would likely reduce the need for officers to respond to certain calls in the first place, so on and so forth. This is one of those uh, leftist tropes that has uh, been popularized by $30 trillion worth of spending as Jack suggests. Also, just sort of the stylized notion that if you just have uh, reasonable professionals or you provide more subsidies for the various areas of life, then everybody's going to be hunky-dory. It just hasn't worked out in practice. By contrast, Jack Elbaum, George Washington University, International Affairs and Economics. In communities rife with crime, police are not the enemy, they're the answer. And the data are quite clear on this. More police means less violent crime. That's why people who live in vulnerable communities tend to want a greater police presence. Weakening dismantling police departments will only empower those who want to inflict harm. Where police activity declines, violent crime rises, and the law-abiding suffer. You may mean well by advocating defunding, but uh, good intentions will do nothing to protect those that their policy puts in danger. Oh, ho, ho, ho. 
Good Intentions and the Road to Hell. Well done. Uh, Jack Elbum at George Washington University gets an A from this professor. That's exactly right. He must have been listening to the show or reading some of the same material. The data is absolutely clear in terms of police presence, particularly in areas of high violent crime, where the incidence of violent crime is high. All you're doing is further exposing the law abiding. And I, and I want to end on a happy note here, a libertarian note, Julian Gregorio, University of Notre Dame Law. When people say to fund the police, my gut reaction is frustration. Abolishing or weakening law enforcement won't stop crime or even racism. But he suggests if Minneapolis wants to be some sort of social experiment uh, and the people don't mind, I guess uh, let's do it. I, I, I do like the uh, disposition to say, oh, this is your policy solution, is it? Well, then go implement it. You've got the votes. Vote your shares. Institute the uh, plans that uh, you want, particularly uh, under the assumption that they're popularly supported by their popularly elected representatives. And let's see what happens. This is Dan Prof. Thanks for joining us on another installment of my program. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.